0: Well, if you would now, take out your Bibles with me. Now, I want to ask that you open them up to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. We're going to look together at verses 16 through 23. Verses that I think are helpful as an introduction to our study of the last chapters of Genesis the series Joseph and Brothers. So I want to begin reading Psalm 105, beginning in verse 16. And this is the Word of God. When he summoned a famine on the land, speaking of God, and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. And then Israel came to Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. In 1933, the famous science fiction writer H.G. Wells published a novel entitled The Shape of Things to Come. The book sought to predict uh, what H.G. Wells thought was going to happen in the future, and Wells got some things right. Uh, he also got some other things very wrong. Uh, in the end, H.G. Wells looked to a day when all religion would be eradicated from the world, and the world would be led by a single government bringing the entire earth into a state of utopia, perfect peace. Well, I've entitled my message this morning, The Shape of Things to Come, but with a very different purpose. I am not attempting to predict the future of the world, that we could look at the Bible for that. Uh, Rather, my intention is simply to give you a preview of what is going to come from this pulpit over the next several months. Uh, This morning, we are returning to the book of Genesis uh, we began studying the book of Genesis in March of 2009, and our study of that book has been split into four sections. Uh, we began with a series called In the Beginning, a study that looked at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. In 2010, we looked at the life of Abraham, Genesis 12-25. through 25. In 2011, we swam through chapters 25 to 35 focusing on Isaac and Jacob, uh, actually 25 to 36. Uh, and now, Lord willing, we are going to complete our study of the book of Genesis by looking at Joseph and his brothers. Now, if you're wondering why we are beginning with a text from Psalm 105, it's because my purpose in this message this morning is to do exactly what these verses we've just read does. That is, I want to give you something of a sweeping summary of what Genesis 37-50 through is about and the big picture of what God was doing in the days of Joseph. I want this message to whet your appetite for the coming weeks and to elevate your sense of how precious these particular chapters of the Bible really are. I want you to see why this portion of Scripture is valuable and why they can be so beneficial to us, even though we live thousands of years since the events recorded in Genesis 37 through 50 took place. My message this morning has a very simple outline. Um, The question that I'm proposing is this one Why study Genesis 37 through 50? Why study this account of Joseph and his brothers? And I want to give you five answers for why this is a beneficial study for us as a church. So number one is this. Reason number one that we should study Joseph and his brothers, Genesis 37 through 50, is this. This account is part of Holy Scripture. This account is part of Holy Scripture. This historical story that we are going to be diving into is a part of the Bible, a part of the Word of God. And this means that this account, this story, is different from most other stories in our world. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says this, most of you know this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so, all in Scripture, all of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And Scripture is not just profitable for the sake of knowledge. That is, Scripture is not simply meant to inform you. No, Scripture is meant to make you complete. Scripture is meant to equip you for every good work. So this account of Joseph and his brothers is part of what God has prescribed for you as the physician of your soul to equip you for better service to him in this life. We all have our various callings. I am a husband, a father, a son, a brother... I am called to serve God in each of those roles. I am a pastor, a friend, a citizen, tutor, go on. And each and every one of these roles that God has providentially placed me, I am to live as an ambassador of Christ, seeking the glory of Christ's name, seeking the building of Christ's kingdom. Well, you have your callings, and you could sit down and you could make a list of them, and if you... I would encourage you to do that if you haven't, to make sure you you see all of the different roles and responsibilities that God has placed on your life. The places in which God has called you to glorify Him, to be an ambassador for Christ. Well, these chapters of the Bible, like all of Scripture, are given to you to help you flourish in these things that God has called you to do. These chapters are meant to equip you, to help you succeed in being truly useful to God. If the Spirit will bless, our study of these chapters will cause us to love God more, will help us to trust God more, will help us to be more committed to Him and His ways. The result in our families, the result in our church, ultimately the result in our community and world, could be very, very large if God would choose to bless by His Spirit in a special way. And so do not underestimate what God might do in the coming months as we dive into this study. We must constantly remind ourselves, this is not just any old book we're studying. We are studying the Bible. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Uh, let me also add here that we must never treat the Bible as a buffet. Right? You go to a buffet and you choose, I want this food, but not that food. I want this, but not that As a church and as individuals, we need all of Scripture. We need a balanced diet. This is why we need to have both New Testament studies and Old Testament studies. This is why we ought not to skip passages of the Bible that maybe don't immediately seem attractive to us. We ought not to ignore parts of the Bible that do not fit our liking. When we take a book of the Bible, we ought to cover it verse by verse, letting every part come to bear on our lives, because the physician of our souls has given us every verse for a reason. So, with great expectation and eagerness, we should look with happiness to this study of Joseph and his brothers. So that's reason number one. These passages are a part of the Bible, the Word of God. Here's the second reason why we should study these chapters. This account teaches us the sweet doctrine of the providence of God. This account teaches us the sweet doctrine of the providence of God. Uh, Let me remind you of the rhyme and reason uh, behind why we have been alternating between Genesis and Romans. Genesis and Romans, the way we have been doing uh, we began in Genesis 1 through 11, in which God taught us of His creating work, but we also saw there the fall of man, and the, the downward spiral of humanity as, as sin took a root in the human race, the increasing depravity that we see in Genesis 1 through11. And then we move to Romans 1 and two. And we saw Paul teach that very same doctrine, though with a little more theological depth. Uh, We saw in these passages, both in Genesis 1 through 11 and Romans 1 and 2, the the height and the width and the depth of the wickedness of human beings, even the wickedness of our own hearts. I remember when we were studying those passages, those were kind of tough days because week after week we were coming together and learning about how bad we are. Uh, We were just hearing again and again all that was wrong with us. But then we came to Genesis 12 through 25 where we saw God establish this glorious covenant with Abraham. And we saw that through God's promised Messiah, there was going to be a day when a new nation would come. And this nation would be different from every other nation the world has ever known. This nation would be holy, dwelling on a land flowing with milk and honey. This nation would be made up of people from every nation on earth. This nation would be led by a perfect king. Abraham lived as a stranger in this world, looking forward to that better country, that better kingdom, that better city that was coming. And how did sinful Abraham, pagan Abraham, come to be made right with God? How did he receive these incredible promises? We saw that it was through faith. Genesis 15:6 Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then we went to Romans 3 and 4. And we saw Paul unpack in greater depth the gospel of how sinners are made right with God. We saw him look back to Abraham, teach salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, on the merits of what Jesus has done for us. We learn how God can be just to count unrighteous people righteous in his sight. We spent weeks together on that mountaintop, that Mount Everest of the Bible in Romans 3, just basking in the gospel. Well, then we went back to Genesis, and we saw the life of Jacob. With Jacob, we witnessed the conversion of a scoundrel. Jacob was a deceptive, conniving, self-serving man. And yet we saw God's grace come upon Jacob's life And we began to watch him change. And we saw that when God saves a person, real transformation results. That God's people are not just declared righteous through faith, but they actually come to live righteous lives. That we are not made perfect in this life, but that real progress in holiness is a part of true Christianity. Rotten sinners becoming humble godly saints and then we went back to Romans 5, 6, 7 and we watched Paul teach us with greater depth we saw how our justification always necessarily leads to sanctification and how our freedom from sin's power to condemn us also means that we can now practically win win battles over sin in our lives today we saw our enemy, sin, and how we are to fight it both offensively and defensively. We saw that we are now saved from the condemnation of God's law. And we also have been saved in order to love the law, to keep the law, to be obedient to the law from our hearts. And so, so far in this, in this series, there has been a parallel always between Genesis and Romans. Genesis and Romans, there was parallel in the doctrines that were being taught. Well, what about now? Well, as we come back to Genesis, is there a central doctrine that we are going to see in these passages that we are then going to see again emphasized in glorious depth in Romans 8? And I would suggest that the answer is yes and that the doctrine that is most celebrated and emphasized in the account of Joseph and his brothers is the doctrine of God's sweet providence. Genesis 50 verse 20 is the banner that hangs over the entire account of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph looks at the brothers who had treated him so wickedly and he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Yes, my brothers, you hated me. Yes, my brothers, you physically attacked me. Yes, you threw me in a pit. Yes, you sold me into slavery. Yes, you lied to our Father concerning what had happened to me. Brothers, what you did was evil, and you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save you, to save your families, to save our Father. Psalm 105 helps us to see this big picture. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 105. When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So you see, it was God who chose in his own wise providence to bring a terrible famine. Upon the ancient Near East, Now you've seen the pictures of terrible famines in our own day. You've, you've seen the photos of men and women who are, are nothing but bones. They appear to be starving to death. You've, you've seen the heartbreaking pictures of the children with, with their stomachs abnormally distended. Well, that's the kind of famine that was coming to the ancient Near East in the days of Jacob. And here is this family through whom God has promised that the Messiah is going to come. We know the Messiah is going to come from the family of Abraham, through Isaac, now through Jacob. And yet Jacob and his kin are now all in grave danger. If God does not intervene, they probably, like most around them, will starve in the severe famine that is about to come on the ancient Near East. And so here in the early days of God's redemptive plan, it already looks like the plan is going to fail. Yet God, in his incredible providence, takes wicked, wicked acts and intends them for good. He uses the hatred of Joseph's brothers to save their lives, to bring about the nation of Israel, ultimately the coming of Jesus Christ himself. Now, church, we get to know this as we read the story. So when we're with Joseph in the pit, we're going to be reminding ourselves, God means this for good. And when we're with Joseph as he is sold into slavery, right, probably that ring put into his nose and the, the hook put into the ring and he's being pulled along, we're going to remember God means this for good. When Joseph is wrongly accused, when Joseph is thrown into a dungeon, we will be reminding ourselves, because we know how it turned out, God meant this for good. And as we do this, we're going to be training ourselves to say, in the midst of our own trials, in the midst of our own battles, in the midst of our own difficulties. God means this for good. We will be able to do Psalm 105 verses 1 through 4. We will be able to to give thanks to God, to make known His deeds, to sing praises to Him, to glory in His name, to rejoice in our hearts. Why will we be able to do that in the midst of suffering? Because we're going to be doing verse 5, remembering the wondrous works that God has done, remembering what God did for Joseph, for Jacob and his family. We will be remembering how God is faithful to His people, how He keeps His promises, that He truly does turn evil to good. And therefore, in the midst of our suffering, by looking back at God's faithfulness in the past, we can have confidence of God's faithfulness in the present, and we can have peace. What does the hymn say? Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. They're unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You see the connection to Romans 8. What is the most famous verse of Romans 8? Romans 8:28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so together from these passages, if the Spirit will bless, we should have growing in our hearts, in our souls, over the next several months, a deeper and deeper commitment to and peace in the sweet providence of God towards his people. May God make that happen. I pray that he will. Number three. The third reason that we should study these chapters is that this account teaches us the glories of Jesus Christ. This account teaches us the glories of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely remarkable to note the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was the first savior of Israel. That is, he was the first man that God used in a mighty way to save his people. Uh, Joseph is kind of a mini savior, uh, an earthly shadow of the ultimate savior that was to come. And so, as we study Joseph's life, we will see arrows pointing to Jesus everywhere. Uh, A.W. Pink, in his book Gleanings in Genesis, lists more than a hundred parallels between Joseph and Jesus in these chapters. Now, I think some of the ones he brings are maybe stretched a little bit. He, he sees some parallels where I, I'm not sure God intended for us to see parallels. But many of the ones he sees are, I think, right on target. That God wants us to see these things in the life of Joseph and to think that's how our Savior is. That's the way our Savior is. I'm going to give you just a taste. And I want you to see if it is not remarkable how God used Joseph to prefigure Jesus. I'm going to give you just some examples from the very first chapter. These are all examples from just Genesis 37, and we could go on. Joseph was a shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. Joseph was the beloved son of his father. Jesus is the beloved son of his father. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Jesus came to his own and was rejected by them. Joseph was hated because of the words that he spoke. Jesus was hated because of the words that he spoke. Joseph's future was foretold in prophetic visions. Jesus' life was foretold in prophetic visions. The reign of Joseph as a ruler was foretold. The reign of Jesus as Lord was foretold. We're told that the great sin that led to Joseph's brother's plot against him, was their envy. We're told that the great sin that led the religious leaders to plot against Jesus was envy. Joseph's father sends him to seek out his brothers. Jesus' father sends him to seek out his own. Uh, Joseph seems to go the extra mile, showing himself deeply committed to the mission his father had given him. Jesus was deeply committed To the mission his father had given him. Despite their attitude towards him, Joseph appears to genuinely love his brothers. Despite their cruelty to him, Christ seems to genuinely love people. Joseph was stripped of his robe. Jesus was stripped of his. Joseph was cast into a pit. Jesus was thrown into a grave. Joseph was taken out of the pit alive and well. Jesus was bodily resurrected from the tomb. Joseph was sold for the price of a slave. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. It was Joseph's brother Judah who suggested the idea of kidnapping and selling his brother into slavery. It was Jesus' disciple Judas, which is the Greek name for Judah, who betrayed him. Uh, Joseph's coat was sprinkled with blo- with the blood of a goat and then presented to his father. Jesus is our scapegoat, and his blood is presented to our father as a sin offering. And we could go on and on. The truth is, when you study the life of Joseph, and you see all of the ways that he prefigured Christ, it shows you how hardened and how blind the people in Jesus' day were really were. That if they had only paid attention, they would have seen that so much of what was happening right before them in the life of Jesus was right on track with what had taken place in the life of their first Savior, Joseph, way back in the book of Genesis. Jesus told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. My prayer as we study these chapters is that you will see Christ and that you will not draw back from Christ. My prayer is that any who come among us who, who do not know Christ will see Him in these passages and will come to Him and, and be saved by Him. And for those of us who do know our Savior, I pray that we will see His glorious character anew, and that our love for Christ will be stirred up That's number three. Number four. Number four. The fourth reason we should study these chapters is that this account teaches us the great truth of redemption. This account teaches us the great truth of redemption. Maybe you're here this morning and you have really messed up. You've gotten yourself in a terrible situation. You've been foolish. Maybe more than that, you've been... You've done something wicked. You've done something that that hurts somebody else. Maybe you've done something that you really regret and and you wish that you could take it back. Is there any hope for people who have really messed up? Is there redemption for people who have done something wicked and hurtful? Maybe the burden that you're carrying isn't that you have done one particular thing that was wicked and hurtful. Maybe you are carrying the burden of of now realizing that you've been living in wickedness and selfishness for, for decades, even your whole life. Can someone like that be made right with God? Can a true sinner ever change? Can a person whose life has been a curse on others his entire life be transformed into a person who is a blessing to others? Is there redemption in this world? Well, Friends, there is a reason why we're calling this series Joseph and His Brothers. These chapters are not only about Joseph. In fact, much of the content of these chapters is focused on the change that we're going to watch come about in the lives of Joseph's brothers. Most of his brothers were abominable. In the coming weeks, I'll remind you of some of what we've already seen them do even before we get to Genesis 37. And we're going to see their wickedness continue in the opening chapter of our study. But just like their father Jacob, these brothers are going to experience a transformation. God is going to humble them. God is going to bring these brothers low. And he's going to break them. But after God breaks them, he will turn them into a blessing. In the opening chapter, we find the brothers conspiring to kill one of their own. Later... We will see the willingness of one brother to put his life in danger for the sake of all the rest. Willing to lay his own life down in love for his other brothers. We will see Judah, a man of of great immorality, become a wise and respectful leader. The ancestor of Christ himself. Uh, Once we get to chapter 42, from there to chapter 47, we're going to watch as these men have to face, have to confront their past crimes against Joseph. And we're going to watch as they are brought to true repentance. And we're going to see the forgiveness they receive and the reconciliation that comes about. Friends, this is how it can be for us. You can come to God. You can humble yourself, repent of your past deeds, and have a happy reconciliation with Him. Because of Jesus, because of His life, His death, His resurrection, that is possible for you. True forgiveness, true redemption, true transformation, it is possible in this world. Many of us in this room, we hope that we're living, breathing testimonies to that, don't we? What's more, we're going to see that though there may be folks that you have greatly wronged, and we cannot guarantee that a certain person will ever forgive you, we will see that this path of being brought low, humbling ourselves, confessing, seeking reconciliation, that is the path of blessing. That is the path of joy. As far as it depends on you, seek reconciliation, and God will bless that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Fifth, and finally, we should study these chapters because this account teaches us the great lesson of forgiveness. This account teaches us the great lesson of forgiveness. See, maybe right now you're in a situation where what's in the front of your mind is not something you've done, but something that somebody else has done. To you, And maybe you're harboring anger or bitterness or resentment in your soul. Maybe you're like Jesus, I mean like Joseph. You were greatly mistreated for no fault of your own. And maybe you're still in that situation. Well, we're going to see in this book the great lesson of forgiveness. We're going to see how knowing God... How trusting God, how resting in God's providence allows us as Christians to be extravagant forgivers. We can be greatly abused and yet greatly forgive. We ourselves have been forgiven of so much by our God. And we ourselves know that whatever anyone has done to us, whatever anyone has done to us, we're going to see that ultimately. It happened under the providence of God for our good. And we're going to see how that lays a foundation for us to be quick to forgive other people. So if someone who hurt us deeply comes to us and they they want our forgiveness, we should be able to happily extend it to them. We're going to marvel as Joseph does this towards his brothers. And we're going to marvel at how our own Father forgives us for all our sins. And we're going to be encouraged as a church to have that same forgiving spirit towards one another and towards all who are in our lives. I wonder, is it possible that the heart work has already begun? Could it be that God is already doing something in your soul even as we think about this coming series. As you've heard me go over these five themes, did you already sense your conscience being pricked? When I was speaking of a certain theme, were you thinking, "Mm, when we get there, God's going to be all over me on that one? Friends, if you know that God has called you to do something, don't wait for a future sermon to do it if God is calling you to repent, if God is calling you to seek reconciliation, if God is calling you to a, a new respect for the Bible or a greater uh, resting in the providence of God, today is the day to resolve in your heart to do those things. Go to Christ in faith. Confess your sins. If God is calling you to do something, you ought to do it now. Now, I have not in any way come close to covering everything that we're going to learn in this series, this was just meant to be something of a sneak preview. Uh, We will find in this study many valuable lessons about family life, especially about parenting and sibling relationships. Uh, We're going to find in this study lessons about holiness, godly work ethic, fighting for sexual purity... We're going to dive into some very interesting doctrinal issues, discussing things like what is the role of dreams and the interpretation of dreams and how is it that God communicates with us as Christians. And so we have every reason to believe that God is going to do some really special things in these coming days. But my closing exhortation to you as a church, as we get ready to dive into these things in the weeks ahead, are these two exhortations. Number one, pray. As precious as the Word of God is, it does no good without God's blessing. God draws near to the humble. So let us humble ourselves. Let us feel our need for Him. And let us plead with Him to bless. Let us pray that God would make this study a momentous time in the life of our church. A time in which we will grow spiritually by leaps and bounds. Let us pray that God will use these messages to minister to us. And let us pray that God would bring in more visitors and unbelievers and that God would use this word to minister to them. Don't pray small prayers about this coming series. Pray big prayers about how even preaching through the end of Genesis can affect the world. Remember, our God can do more in one second than we can do combined together in our strength in a lifetime. So pray. Pray that God would bless. And then second, be here. Come. Where does God, where does Christ come in power? It is in the gatherings of his people, around his word Uh, Revelation speaks of Jesus walking among his lampstands, and it's a picture of Christ and his presence being among his local churches. And Jesus promised that wherever two or more people are gathered in his name, there he would be with them. He's everywhere, but when Christians gather around his word, he's present in a more powerful, more unique, more special way. And what's more, Christ loves to work through His Word, especially through the preaching, the proclamation of His Word. And so we have every reason to believe that God is going to be working in the midst of these days. And if you're not here, you're going to miss what God is doing. You'll miss the ministry of Christ to your soul. So be present as much as you can. And so, that's the shape of things to come. Uh, Unlike H.G. Wells, I do not believe that perfect peace will ever come about by the rejection of God at the hands of a worldwide government. Rather, perfect peace comes only through Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that in the days ahead, above all, God will increase our faith and our love for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.